Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, it's great to be together again and uh, exciting that we have the opportunity to continue today our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We began a couple of weeks ago looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, this long message that Jesus gave uh, very early in his, uh, his public ministry. And one of the, the things that we saw a couple of weeks ago as we looked on the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus offered blessing. He offered happiness in life. And then last week we saw how he continued that conversation by encouraging us to go public with our faith. And one of the verses that we looked at last Sunday was Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, which says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And one of the things uh, that we did last Sunday was we encouraged all of us to take our faith public in some way this week. And I encourage you as you did that uh, to let me know what some of the ways were that you took your faith public this last week. And so I want to just celebrate for a moment some of the, the stories that, that I got to hear as these stories were shared. One, of the, one family went public with their faith by gathering bread from Panera Bread and taking it to food and shelter uh, to those in need in our community. That's one way they went public with their faith. Uh, another wrote a letter to a family member who was struggling with a theological issue. It's something they maybe put off for a little bit of time, but they stepped into that conversation this last week, going public with their faith. Uh, still another took an opportunity through their, their business and a contact to help point somebody towards the sovereignty of God. Still another had margin in their budget where they kept $20 that they might be able to, to use in case of emergency. And they took that 20 and they helped somebody get some gasoline that needed some gasoline in the name of Christ. Somebody else uh, just took the opportunity to write a couple of notes, one to a believer, one to an unbeliever, just to let them know that they were around them, that they were there to encourage them as they had need. And still another took the opportunity to reach out to their neighbor and they had some conflict with their neighbor and they asked for forgiveness. And not only did they asked for forgiveness, but they talked about how God had been teaching them about forgiveness and it opened the door to a conversation. And so, you know, as we go public with our faith, it's exciting to see how God can work through that. And, and I say that um, because as I go through these, these examples, and these are just some of the stories that I heard coming back, but as I go through these examples, um, some of you are going, oh, I forgot about that. Well, guess what? This isn't like high school. In, in high school, when you would show up and you forgot about the test, you would endure the test, and then you didn't have to deal with it again. But one of the things that's exciting about the Christian life is that Jesus will say in this week's passage that this command will continue until heaven and earth have passed away. So if you're still on the planet, you're still breathing in oxygen, guess what? We have the opportunity to continue to go public with our faith. And if you want to share those stories with me, I would love to continue to pray with you as we go public and point people to Christ. And, and there's just a, an illustration that, that God encouraged me with this last week. Um, that maybe will help you think about continuing to go public with your faith, and it has to do with Starbucks coffee. Now, on Tuesday mornings, I get together with a group of guys, and we study the Scripture together. And as I go to that time of study, one of the things that I will do is I will stop and get a cup of coffee. Now, getting the perfect cup of Starbucks coffee is important to me in the morning, and 
perfect for me might be different for perfect for you, but this is what I found to be the perfect cup of Starbucks coffee for me. And that is that I get a tall coffee. Now, when, you, when I say tall at Starbucks, what does that mean? What size is that? Small, medium, or large? Small. Okay, you all know it better than I do. I still have to think about it. I have to look on the board. But tall is their small size. But what I found was when I put a tall coffee in a tall cup, my car ends up wearing my coffee. And so I take a tall coffee and I ask them to put it in a grande cup. So there's a little bit of extra room so that my coffee ends up staying in the cup and I'm able to enjoy it. And I think about our lives. Many times we take all of our minutes of our life as like a tall cup of coffee. We pour it in our tall cup and there's no room. And when there's no room, we don't have the opportunity to be open to God using us in the lives of people. Sometimes we need to create some room financially. We need to create some room with our calendar. But I would encourage us to continue to leave a little room in our cup so that God can pour us out in the lives of those around us. But we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount that we go public with our faith. Well, we're going to see the next installment of the Sermon on the Mount today by looking at what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So after encouraging us to go public with our faith, Jesus now turns the conversation towards the topic of, of righteousness in the law. And so we're going to look at that today. This is really a part of a longer section of the Sermon on the Mount that goes from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through verse 48, where Jesus is going to talk about this topic. And today we're going to look primarily at the introduction to this section and the conclusion of this section. So we'll read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, then we'll drop down to verse 48. So if you've got a Bible, you turn there, we'll spend the balance of our time there this morning. Jesus continues his sermon and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then down in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in these verses today, we're going to see a couple of things that I think are important for us as we kind of set the table for our celebration of the Lord's Supper today. The first thing that we need to see is this. Jesus demonstrates, not deflates, the law. Jesus demonstrates, not deflates, the law. Now, I think what Jesus is doing in the early parts of these verses that we looked at is he is anticipating opposition. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus is anticipating that there is conflict developing in his audience with his relationship to the Old Testament law. He, he's anticipating this. Now, this isn't just out of thin air. Jesus had already experienced some conflict with the religious leaders of his day as he had been teaching and, and, and demonstrating his ministry. People had begun to get frustrated with some of his actions because they looked inconsistent with their understanding of the Old Testament. 
I mean, just think of some of the things that Jesus did that frustrated the contemporary understanding of the first century of the law. Jesus did things like touching a leper. That was a no-no in the law. How, how could he do such a thing? He, he did things like healing on the Sabbath. How could he possibly think that it's okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath? That frustrated folks in the first century. He did things like, like teaching with authority, his own authority. He didn't ascribe himself to some other school of thought of his day, but he said, truly, I say to you, this bothered them. He did things like calling himself God. That bothered them. All of these things were at odds with their contemporary understanding of the Old Testament. And so as Jesus is teaching, the questions are forming in the minds of people as if to say, Jesus, what do you really think about the law? What is your connection to the Old Testament? I mean, keep in mind, even in the context of this sermon, Jesus began talking about blessing and happiness, but he didn't say, blessed are those who are the law keepers. Blessed are those who have memorized the Old Testament. He doesn't mention that. And so there's a question that's wondering, where is his criteria? Is it, what is his connection to the Old Testament law? Jesus talks about good works, but the question that might come to mind is, what good works? Obedience to what? The challenge that was developing around Jesus is what is his continuity with the Old Testament? What is his connection to the law? So Jesus anticipates this question. And I think it's, it's, it's wonderful to see kind of the sovereignty of God in, in, in present in Jesus in this moment, where I think Jesus could look into the souls of people and understand the questions that they had. Um, it would be wonderful for me today if I could look out there and know if you're getting it or not. Um, Ryan, you just nodded. That made me feel good. I appreciate that. But you know, you, I wish that I could do that, right? I wish I could look into your souls and understand. You wish I couldn't look into your soul because you're thinking about something else right now. I understand. But I, I wish that I had that kind of thing. You know, we used to have a dog, and, and this dog, when I would say certain words, that dog's head would go like this, right? Just kind of tilt. And, and then we could know the dog wasn't following what we were saying. Um, sometimes I wish that we had that ability when we preach. But Jesus obviously has that ability. He looks out on his audience and he understands that there's a gap in their understanding. And so Jesus, understanding this gap, is going to address and let them know, what is my connection with the Old Testament? What is my connection with the law? And, and what they were wondering um, was, hey, has, have you come, Jesus, to demolish the law? Have you come to deflate it? Have you come to blow it up? The words in the passage that Jesus uses, he says, have you come to abolish the law? That word abolish is the word that would be used of the destruction of a building. If you've ever seen a building torn to the ground, that was what Jesus is saying. You, you might think that I have come to blow this law up, to blow this Old Testament up, but Jesus says, I have not come to blow up the Old Testament. I haven't come to deflate it. I have come to fulfill it. Now, what is he mean when he says he has come to fulfill the law? It means that he has come to fill it up. I mean, if you take a 32-ounce mug and you put 32 ounces of fluid in it, you would have fulfilled that mug. You would have filled it up. In the same way, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fill it up. I have I've come to demonstrate to you what the law really meant, what it really points to who it's really all about. Jesus came to fill it up. And, and the picture that I, I thought of that maybe will help us understand this is a picture related to clothing. Now, you know, I, I got up this morning and I got dressed, and these clothes, they, they fit me. 
But I, I can imagine if my 10-year-old son, who is 150 pounds and two feet smaller than me, if, if he were to come into my room and grab these clothes, he could physically put them on his body, but they wouldn't look right, right? They, there would be such a gap in, in space. It would look like a bedsheet draped about him. No matter what I had, it would look like a toga party if he tried to wear my clothes on him. Um, and in the same way, I think what, what Jesus was saying was, he said, look, your contemporary understanding of the law is deficient. Your understanding of the law is something that can be fulfilled two feet shorter and 150 pounds less than it actually is. Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take this law and I'm going to put it on and I will fill it out so you see what it really looks like. Jesus fulfilled the law in a variety of ways. One of the ways that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets was he lived a life that the law and the prophets pointed to. I mean, think about all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm the one that those prophecies pointed to. I am a fulfillment of that prophecy. Think about even the sacrificial system. Jesus says the Old, Old Testament animal sacrifices, they all pointed to me. Jesus didn't just come to offer another lamb as sacrifice. He came as the lamb of God to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. In that way, he filled the law out. He let us know what it was all about. And not only did he fulfill the law in those ways, but Jesus also fulfilled the law by living out the moral aspects of the law perfectly and flawlessly. He filled them out. You see, it's common for people, we'll talk about this a little more later on, but it's common for us to want to take the law and make it very two-dimensional, make it very shallow, make the commands of God very attainable for us, surface, skin deep. But Jesus came and didn't just obey the law at a skin-deep, superficial level. He came and obeyed the law at a depth that had never been seen before. In that way, Jesus comes and he fills out the law so that we understand what the law is really all about. Jesus comes and says, I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to deflate the law. I came to demonstrate the law. I came to fulfill the law. And it's interesting, that probably should raise some questions that you and I might have about the law. Because one of the, the questions that we might have is, okay, well, if Jesus came to fulfill the law and, and not to destroy it, then how come there are some practices of the law that we no longer continue? Well, John Calvin has a, a helpful quote that maybe will help us make sense of this. He says, it was only the use of them, the Old Testament sacrifices, that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed. You see, when Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, it's no longer necessary for us to continue the practice of animal sacrifice, but the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament now make sense in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus came to, to fill out the law so that we would understand the reality of who God is not to abolish it, not to destroy it. Jesus wanted to make sure that his audience in the first century understood his connection to the Old Testament. And you and I need to remember that as well. We have 39 books of our Bible in the Old Testament. We need to understand that they're inspired by God. They are gifts given to us. But inside of those things, there is a thread that points towards Christ so that we would understand 
what the fullness of God looks like. Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But he continued on in verse 18, and he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is here saying that all of the law is true, all of it is inspired by God, all of it will run its full course in all of its meaning until the end of this age. What is written in the Old Testament is accurate, and Jesus says it is accurate down to the iota, down to the dot. Now, what, are those, what is that language? You may have, have heard this said before, but when Jesus said that, this is literally what he was saying. When he says it is right down to the iota, he is talking about the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the yod. looks like an apostrophe in, in, our, in our language, just a, little, just a little line. He says, down to the very smallest letter the law is true. And not only that, but Jesus says it's not just to the iota, but it's also to the dot. And the dot would be the equivalent of, in our font system, what would be like a serif. You know, certain fonts are called sans serif. They don't have any little frills on the end of anything, and you know, little extra lines. By saying that it's all the way down to the dot, he's saying right down to that little, that little serif that's there. It's all true. Jesus was not his comment here is very strong about the accuracy of the Old Testament, down to the very words, down to the very letters. It's important. Why do we talk about the original language and the words of the Scripture? It's not because we just want to sound smart. It's because Jesus said they all matter. He says they're inspired right down to the letter, right down to the stroke. And that way, Jesus says, I did not come to deflate the law. I came to demonstrate it. To, to put it on so that you can understand what it looks like, so that you can understand what God looks like. And, and here's why that's important. You and I have a tendency to want to make our relationship with God, our religion, our Christianity, whatever you want to say, we want to make it superficial. What does a, a non-superficial walk with God look like? A non-superficial walk with God looks like Jesus. We get to see a picture of what that looks like lived out. We get to see the standard in living color. Jesus came to demonstrate it for us. So the first thing we see is that Jesus demonstrates, not deflates, the law. But the second thing that I think we see that is very important is this. We are called to his deeper standard. We're called to his deeper standard. Now, the first part of these verses we saw in 17 and 18 talk about Jesus' relationship to the law. Now, in verses 19 and 20, he's going to talk about our relationship to the law, you and I. And the way that he does that is he begins to talk about a, a, a tendency or a temptation that all of us have. And that tendency or temptation that we have is to relax the standards of God's law. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus acknowledges that there is a, a tendency, a temptation that people have to relax the standard of God. That's what we want to do. We want to take the commands of, of Christ, the commands of God, the commands of the law, and we want to make them less taxing. And we want to take the permissions of the law, the things that we're allowed to do, and we want to make them more permissive. 
This is the temptation. This is what we want to do. We want to relax it. Why? We want to do this so that we make the standard more attainable. Jesus will illuminate this for us from verses 21 through verses 47 and verses we're going to look at beginning next Sunday. But but what Jesus does, he lets us know that his standard is not superficial. His standard is not skin deep. His standard is deep. And a deep understanding of the law will not relax the standards. We, We take God's law and his standard, we want to relax it. Think about a command in the law, a command like, thou shalt not murder. Now, if we wanted to make that command something that we think we could live into, we might say, well, that means don't kill anybody and that's it. And, and many of us would be able to live that out for the rest of our days without having that happen. Now, if, if you've been a part of uh, the death of someone in the past, know that there's forgiveness out there for you. But many of us might want to take this standard and we want to reduce it to a level that we could accomplish and we say, we'll never first degree murder, cold, cold-blooded, go after somebody that way. But what Jesus does is Jesus will expand that idea and take it deeper. He'll say, the command to not murder is more than just not killing somebody, but it's not harboring anger or bitterness towards them that makes you have an attitude that wants to harm them in any way. See what Jesus did there? He doesn't just take the command and make it superficial. He takes the command and he makes it deeper. Think about the command to not commit adultery. You know, we, we hear that and we think, how can we write that in a way that we could, it's a bar that we can cross, and we think, well, we're never going to sleep with someone that is not our spouse, but Jesus takes that command and he makes it deeper. He fulfills it and demonstrates it, fills out the clothes for us a little more to let us know that what that command also means is that we also are pure in our thoughts, not just in our actions. Jesus doesn't relax the standards of God. He develops them even further so that we would understand it. See, he makes the the commands of God, and he doesn't want us to relax them. The same thing are true with the permissions inside of God's law. I mean, one of the things that we're permitted inside of God's law to do is to love our neighbor. That's a a wonderful thing, but but what do we want to do in order to make that permission more permissive? We want to think, okay, I'll love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? My neighbor are the people that I like. I'm supposed to be neighborly to those I like. Okay, Jesus, I get it. But Jesus says, I don't want you to relax that standard. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is everyone. He tells a parable about this. The standard is, is high. He doesn't want us to relax it in any way. Who am I supposed to forgive? I'm supposed to forgive those who have something to offer me in the future. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, you are to forgive those who have wronged you. You're to love your enemies. Jesus does not relax the standard. He, he keeps it high. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. Jesus goes even further, and he makes this shocking statement in verse 20. After talking about our tendency to want to relax God's standards, he says this in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read verse 20, that sounds about right to us, doesn't it? Why is that? Because we have grown up with the New Testament as a book. We have. We've grown up with the New Testament as a book. And in the melodrama of the New Testament, who are the bad guys? Who are the ones that wear the, 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 the black coat and that twist their mustaches in the corner? It's the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So when we hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we go, 
No, duh, of course. Of course you've got to be more righteous than those hypocrites. That's what we do. But what did they do in the first century when Jesus said this? There might have been some people at the back that are going, yeah, go get them, Jesus. But there were also a whole lot of people that were going, oh, no. Because the the scribes and the Pharisees, they were people who had demonstrated righteousness in the world like they had never seen. They were people who were very religious. They were people that had, took the hundreds of laws that God gave and they made hundreds more. They were people that had a very broad righteousness, a righteousness that was very, very wide. And there were many things that they didn't do and they wanted you to know they weren't doing them. And they had many things that they, they did do and they wanted to know that, you to know that they were doing those things so that they might be able to gain from you some type of, of status. And in their minds, in some way, they might impress God. They were people that had a very broad sense of righteousness. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there was this oh no moment that happened in the original audience. Their thought is, if the scribes and the Pharisees don't have enough righteousness to impress you, then I have no chance. And friends, if that is what they thought, they got the point. That's why Jesus said it. Jesus wanted them to know that hope was found not in their performance, but in his work. And friends, when we think about our lives today, we need to get the same message. Let me just be honest. If if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you've come with a friend, you've come with a spouse, you've come with your kids, you're not really following Christ, but you're here for, for whatever reason. It's possible from the outside looking in that you would have an appearance of Christianity that looks like the Pharisees. It looks wide and thin. You know what we're against. There are politics we are for and politics we're against. And you would know that if you have Facebook, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a political aspect of, of this. And then beyond that, there would be an entertainment aspect of this. There are things we won't watch. And then beyond that, there is a book aspect of this. There's a, a book that we, we, we look to and we know. It's, it's, the, it's the Bible. And beyond that, there are words that we just won't say. And, and on and on and on. And so you might have an appearance or a perspective about Christianity that is this big, wide, thin layer. And you think, wow, is that what that's all about? But here's what you don't know. If that is your impression of Christianity, here's, I want to just help you understand what we really believe. What we really believe is that our life is not just a broad set of shallow commands, but in every one of those areas, there's a depth that reveals our brokenness. We have political opinions. You have political opinions. But you know what? When you mine down past the surface, you know what you find? There's some selfishness inside of us that impacts some of our views. Let's just be honest. It's true. When you get down deep enough, at a shallow level, we look like we've got it all together. You mine down deep enough and you find a broken person. When you think about our our entertainment options, yeah, there are some things that we don't watch. But you know what? If you mine down deep, you know what you find? You find a heart that 
has problems that, that lust. So there are things that we don't say. We might not say it in public. We might use that other little slang word instead of this one, and, and it might have a certain public appearance. But you know what? If you mind down deep, there's some words that we say in our soul. There's some things that we say in the quiet of our room. We, we might talk about the Bible, and we, we know it, and we believe it, but, but here's the thing. When we talk about the Scripture, when you mind down deep enough, there are verses that we don't know. There are concepts that we don't apply, and we are broken and sinful people. Friends, just like the first century, we need to remember that there's a depth of a standard that we're called to. We're not called to simply know God at a superficial level but we're called to follow him in the depth of his standard. And when we understand that, we realize that we fall far short. Look at how Jesus ends this whole section. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, verse 48. Friends, the standard is God. It's not each other. The standard is God. And if the standard is God, guess what? We all fall short. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short continually of God's standard. Why do we fall short of God's standard? Because the standard is him. I mean, if we're going to compare me and Darren, I'm going to fall short of Darren. But, I, but when we compare me and God, I fall way short, right? We need to remember that the standard is, is God. And when we understand that, we understand this depth, we realize that there is this separation. And friends, Jesus goes through this in his message because he wants his original audience and he wants you and I to know something very important. We cannot be found until we are lost. We cannot be found until we are lost. If we think that our life is about our performance, we will continue to perform and try to gain God's approval. But when we realize that the standard is so high and it is so deep, then we understand that our only hope is for a divine intervention. And that is, in fact, what God has provided for us in Christ. The righteous standard is so high, but God has sent Jesus into the world to fill out the law. And then God says, our brokenness, our sinfulness will be attached to Christ on the cross and his righteousness will be credited to our account for all eternity so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be free, so that we might have a future and a hope in him. Jesus wants us to know the standard is high, but then he follows that up by providing what is necessary for that standard. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, Lord, give what thou dost command, then both the grace and the glory will be thine alone. Friends, God set the standard high, but then God provided the standard in Christ. I want us to reflect on something before we go before the Lord and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and that is this. I want you to think for a moment about an area of your life which is your best moral area, okay? Your best one, not your worst one. I want you to think of your best moral area, okay? Just take a moment. For some of you, um, this might be being able to say encouraging words. You speak in Hallmark cards, all right? I, I want you to think about that. If that's you, that, I want you to think about that area. Um, it, it might be to show compassion to people. You, you're the person that cries at the toilet paper commercials, okay? If, if, if you are the compassionate person, I want you to think about that. Or if you're the, the person that is the, the, the helper person in your neighborhood, you're the one that has all the power tools, somebody comes over and they get it. I want you to think of your, your best area. 
when you think about the area of your life where your morality is at its peak, I want you to think about that, okay? Now I want you just for a moment to mine down in the depths of that area, the area of your strength. How deep do you have to go in that area before you find your need? How deep do you have to go in that area before you find your brokenness? You have to go down to the point where you realize, you know what, I'm, I'm getting too much of my own personal identity in this action. You know, I'm only doing this because it gets a lot of attaboys from those around me. I'm only, whatever it is, how, how deep do you have to go before you find your brokenness? Friends, that's in our best area. How about our worst? In both instances, in both instances, we need to remember this, friends. God's solution to that gap is not us trying harder. God's solution to that gap is for us not to lower the standard, but it's for us to trust in Christ who fills it. He did not come to deflate, but to demonstrate. And he offers that gift of righteousness to you and me. As we end our service, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that is open to all of those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, whether that is something that began today in this service as you trusted Christ in the midst of this, or whether that is something that uh, has happened years ago. But this table is open to those who have trusted Christ as Savior. And at this table, there are two symbols. There is bread and there is a cup. Those two symbols are reminders of the body and the blood of Christ. Interestingly, these are symbols that Jesus fulfilled. He demonstrated the law in these. These were symbols from the Passover meal that he repurposed for the new covenant. He repurposed for you and I. He filled them out so we understood what they really meant. And so we'll have an opportunity to partake of these elements together as a reminder of the righteousness of God that he has extended to us. So if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can partake of this meal with us. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, um, we'd invite you to trust him today and have your first action of trusting Christ be to receive these elements as reminders of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. So the way that we're going to serve our communion today is we have six stations around the room that are all identical. In just a moment after I pray, some music is going to play, and you're going to have the opportunity to move to one of those stations. So if you are one of the gentlemen who are helping at one of these stations, you can go to those stations now um, and get them ready. And then I'm going to pray. And after I pray, move to the station closest to you, get the elements, return to your seat, and hang on to them. And then we'll partake of them together in a moment. Father, thank you for just the privilege and the opportunity of worshiping you today. Thank you for the power of your word and the truth of the gospel. Father, thank you for the righteousness of Christ that you extend to us and you offer to us in grace. And Father, I pray that as we realize the depth of your standard, that we also would realize the depth of your grace. And we would trust Jesus together today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.